Here we've actually got a broadening, diversifying, deepening market, which looks perfect technically, has a good roadmap, has good seasonality. It's like, if you can't find conviction here, you're never going to find it. This is like the perfect storm for Bitcoin. Hello there from Bedford, the home of Bitcoin. How are you all? How's your week going? Bitcoin trading sideways a bit. A bit frustrating, right? During this bull market, you just want to go up like a rocket ship. But here it is, ranging between like 54,000 and 44,000. Like it's no big deal. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I'm going to interview with my good friend, Rao Pau, where we're going to be discussing how institutional investors look at Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Firstly, today I'm going to talk to you about sportsbet.io, the best place for betting against Tottenham losing, the only place I use for betting against Tottenham losing. And why? Because they accept Bitcoin. God, I love these guys. Spent a lot of time with them getting to know the business and their love for Bitcoin. And I watched them put a Bitcoin logo on the front of the Southampton shirt. So if you're watching Premier League football and you see a Bitcoin logo, you've got Sportsbet.io to thank. They're trying to tell the world about Bitcoin. Now, with Sportsbet.io, you have access to every market you could be possibly interested in. As I said, if you want to bet on Tottenham losing, you can do that there. But they've got tennis, American sports, motorsports, even esports. They've got every sport you can think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And next up, we have one of my newer sponsors, which is Exodus. Exodus Wallet, who I've been telling you about now it's for over a month because I'd been looking for a solution. As you know, I'm increasingly running my company on Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin. People say, look, can you pay me in Bitcoin? And now the banks have closed my accounts, those motherfuckers. And now they close my accounts. I've got to do more of this Bitcoin shit. So when Exodus reached out to me and they're like, Pete, we want to sponsor your show. And I was like, well, let me take a look at your wallet. It's a pretty quick decision. Had to play around. Great UX. Absolutely what I needed. So now I'm using it. I'm using the wallet to manage parts of my business. And if you want to check it out, you've got to head over to Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Apple or Google app stores. Also, Casa. Right. Listen. Who's making money now in this bull market? Are you making money? Have you got your security shit together? If you have not, you've got to go and check out Carter. I've been with them. I don't even know how long now. It's like nearly 10 months. I'm due for a renewal soon, and I'm going to be upgrading to Carter Diamond. I am upgrading because they've done such a badass job, and I felt so secure having my Bitcoin protected against not just my stupid, idiotic mistakes, device failures, in-person attacks, and so much more. And now, with Casa, you have a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you can get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that's only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 305 multi-sig, and with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance plan, of course, their best-in-class in security. There is no better time to get your Bitcoin security shit together and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so let's go on to the show today. And look, this was a show recorded a few weeks ago, so the price was in a different place. There was a Real Vision event hell where Rao Powell reached out to me and said, look, can you come on and you interview me? And I was like, sure, man, of course I'm going to do that. So I went on and I did the interview and I wanted to talk to Rao about how traditional investors look at Bitcoin and with Rao being a veteran investor, you know, he had a wealth of knowledge. And I turned around to him after the event. I said, look, dude, I love this interview. Can I please put it on my podcast? I think people will get a lot from this. And he was like, yeah, cool. You can have the show, Pete, which is great. Because historically, Bitcoin has been entirely, almost entirely retail driven. And the last couple of years, and especially this bull market, we're seeing the institutions come in. So as I said, this interview was recorded a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, and the price was hovering above 30k. And we're all like, wow, God, this is amazing. And now we're like a 48k and we're like this is bullshit it's funny how it's funny how we do this anyway listen i hope you enjoyed this interview got any questions about it if you want to reach out to me it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com 
Also, a couple of other things. Head over to Defiance.news. Today I released a really old interview I did with Lynn Albrick, the mother of Ross Albrick. It was the 10th interview I ever did in my career. And the reason I've re-released this now in Defiance is with 10 years since the launch of The Silk Road. And now that new shitty movie is out, which is talking about it, I thought I'd get this interview out there. Definitely go and check that out. It's an important story. Also, sign up to my newsletter. That's at neveredit.com. Your daily dose of tech, economics and Bitcoin. Apart from that, have a great weekend. Love you all, and I'll see you all soon. What's up, bro? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Uh, I'm great. How's things? How's Bedford, the home of global crypto? Yes, great. I've been hopping around the islands of Bedford. Um, Actually, I haven't really have I at all. I've been stuck in this house, mate, um, for nearly a year now. It is is what it is. I have looked at a move into Cayman. Is it possible? Maybe. Some point. Might need to. It's easy. Moving. You just need to call me up. You just need to call me up, and I'll give you directions of what you need to do. Well, look, it's a definite consideration. Uh, you know, with Bitcoin doing what it is, and uh, and you know what, you've got a beach near you. So, look, I am, I am doing it. How are you, man? Are you well? Yeah, I'm very good, actually. No complaints. No complaints at all. Well, listen, look, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, a lot of Bitcoin stuff to talk about. I'm not going to get into the other stuff. Not even our bet, but. I think a really interesting starting point, a good question, is that you're obviously a very experienced trader, uh, somebody who's very experienced in the market, uh, got a like a long background in uh, studying economics and such, yet you're right now, it's very clear from your, especially your Twitter, like a long time ago, you used to put a lot of other stuff out there, you're like fully in now, you're like a proper in there Bitcoiner, it seems to be taking up a lot of your headspace, a lot of your thinking, you know, um, is that a fair observation? Yeah, and there's two reasons for that, Peter. Firstly, at the simple level, it's massively interesting, right? There's a huge new world being built in front of our eyes, and we didn't really get a chance of doing that in the financial world before because it was always happening in Silicon Valley or somewhere cool, and we were kind of left out on the side. But this is happening to us, massive disruption that came out of that white paper and changed the world. And in my macro, guys, it's like no other asset is even close to performing like Bitcoin does. So it's almost what's the point. And I know you're supposed to have portfolio diversification and all of that stuff, but sometimes when a, ma- when a macro bet is so clear, so big, so obvious, you've just got to do it. So I feel guilty because people say, well, can't you write about currencies? I'm like, nothing's really going on. It goes up a few percent, down a few percent. Bitcoin, meanwhile, is up 100%. So that's, you know, that's the reality. And I've talked about this is, it's like a super massive black hole that just sucks in everybody because the performance is so dramatic. And the story and the narrative in the future is optimistic. And most of us in finance are bored of being pessimistic about central banks and pessimistic about governments and manipulation and markets and all of that. And here's a whole new world for us to be optimistic about. Well, it feels like a shift in a number of dynamics as well. And I think the story of Wall Street bets over the last two weeks is part of that story, even though they're degen traders and they're probably more interested in a doge pump than Bitcoin. But that itself, a lot of people have referred to recently, I've heard at least four people now refer to it as the biggest hedge fund in the world, but it's a decentralized hedge fund. And it just feels like this this convergence of Bitcoin, uh, social media, technology, and people realizing that actually the kind of power shift is starting to happen now. And that we're all becoming independent, but at the same time, as a collective, we have a lot more power. Are you feeling that? Well, don't forget, we set up Real Vision for this exact reason. We realized that coming out of 2008 and 2012 in Europe, everyone lost faith in the banks, everyone lost faith in financial media. And so it used to be a centralized world where the power to run your money was concentrated in the hands of a few. And we thought about this and thought, this has to change. How can you trust somebody you barely know with your life savings? You have to play a part in it. And that's the democratization of financial intelligence. We thought, we need to give the same information, level the playing field for everybody. And Bitcoin is that in a whole asset class. You know, you're dead right. It's Wall Street Bets is really about people taking responsibility. They will make mistakes. They will learn things on route. But it's the power of the crowd of people. That's social media now. You know, you and I are on Twitter, not because we just like laughing around on it, but we actually learn. You know, we're there to interact with people and learn. 
And this is the same thing with Wall Street Bets, and it's the same thing with the Bitcoin community. It's it's a place that starts with the ground up and not the top down. And that's a huge change and refreshing for all of us. Well, another thing that's refreshing, which, again, is an alignment between Wall Street Bets and Bitcoin, is we often talk about the Bitcoin ledger being open and transparent. And I know uh, your experience on it is pseudonymous. But one of the really interesting things I found about the Wall Street Bet situation is that so much of Wall Street is opaque. I've this last week only learned about prime brokers and clearing and you know rehypothecation of shares. I've heard about it, but I've only started to learn a li- little bit more about how that actually works. So much of it is opaque. We're aware there's a lot of manipulation, and I'm sure there's a lot of rich billionaires uh, up in the Hamptons planning their next big short together. Whatever, whatever's going on, it's pretty opaque. And what actually happened was something that was entirely transparent. A group of traders on Wall Street bets pretty much being very public about what they're doing, what their strategy was. And that itself has caused this shitstorm. But actually, I think the thing is, if you if you look, take a step back and look at it, they were our heroes this last couple of weeks. Nobody was cheering on Wall Street. Nobody was sympathetic to Melvin Capital or Citadel. No, nobody's really sympathetic to Robin Hood. You know, we've heard about how Robin Hood makes its fees. Yet we had a group here. It's like this uh, this uprising of the small little guy who was able to take them on. But what they did was transparent and open. And for me, it just made me think, it's like, let's make everything transparent and open. Let's put it all out there. Yeah, I think that's right. But, you know, if we go to the deeper thing of, you know, rebuilding a financial system from scratch, which is what we're all trying to do here, so much of it is actually unnecessary for us to know. Because why should, you know, my uncle in India need to know about, custody, clearing, all of this stuff. So our job in this, I think, is to make sure when we build out on Bitcoin that we make sure that it is accountable and we don't make the mistakes of the previous system. Um, But so that it does give transparency by its definition of exactly as you said, is, is how it's constructed gives that. And we need to make sure that we use it. Because humans being humans will create complicated derivative layers over everything. And before you know it, we're blowing up, you know, a DeFi project in Bitcoin. I mean, who knows? So, you know, I, I remain a little bit cynical because humans are just generally by nature gamblers and they always look for the economic advantage. And so therefore there's a way of obscuring the reality. But the good thing about blockchain technology is what it can solve here. So look, I, I am optimistic. I do think it's a sea change. And it is going to be more, you know, stuff like on-chain analysis will allow everybody the same access that if you're a hedge fund, you know what the short positions are in the prime brokers, how levered everybody is. You know, you don't know on a name-by-name basis, but you know a lot more information. When you use on-chain analysis, it's publicly available for everybody. So you can see what's really going on. That's really interesting. As you said, that gives the power back to the little guy and levels the playing field. So let's talk a little bit more about Bitcoin, because uh, it was a great end to the last year. It's been a fantastic start to this year. Uh, I myself have been pretty active in Bitcoin now for four years. Um, uh, very busy, obviously, running a podcast, speaking to a lot of people. But at the same time, my real conviction has really started. I would say the trigger point was COVID lockdowns. Um, I was still mainly in fiat. I had exposure to Bitcoin. I owned some Bitcoin. But ever since the COVID lockdowns, I've gradually been putting the majority of my personal and business wealth into Bitcoin. And strangely, even though I've been in Bitcoin for you know four years, the majority of Bitcoin I've purchased has been over the $10,000 price. And I've been buying increasingly more over the last five to six months and uh, sorry, five, to six weeks. And this isn't uh, a FOMO thing. It's not like I'm FOMOing in. I've actually just had had more conviction from what has been happening with the likes of Michael Saylor, uh, MicroStrategy, MicroStrategy, Mass Mutual, Ruffers, Stonebridge, Stonebridge. Like, there's all these different institutions now coming in and with placing serious bets. And for me, that has essentially put this like protective moat around Bitcoin now. Do you do you feel similar? Yeah, very much so. So you know, like you, I've been in Bitcoin. I've, you know, I've been in and out of Bitcoin since 2013. But I had nothing coming into 2019. 
And then, you know, I had a conversation with Dan Tapiero. He forced me to get back in again, start focusing on it. And the price was going against it, right? So it wasn't, wasn't the right time, but it got me to refocus, thinking, okay. And then, you know, that structural framework from plan B gave us all something to hold on to. So that gave us something. Then the price action, it broke out of that wedge. And that was like, okay, now we've got a structural roadmap. We kind of realize the world's moved forward and we've got price action that confirms it. And then out of the blue, we started hearing about institutions in the space. And for me, same thing is because I had a ton of conversations that started with hedge fund managers in their personal accounts saying, i got to get some Bitcoin. And then I'm like, huh, if it goes in their personal accounts, I'll end up in their funds. They just can't do it yet. And then you start seeing what Fidelity are doing and BlockFi are doing and a bunch of other people are doing in the space, and you realize they're making institutional access easier. Huh, okay, that gives me more conviction. Then you start seeing the announcements come, and then offline, I'm getting ridiculous phone calls from ridiculous people telling me ridiculous stuff about what's going on. I'm like, wow, you know, I knew about the New York Dig guys for a while because, you know, I knew a bunch of people involved with them. So that gives me the confidence that it's not just, let's say, like Wall Street Bets, where it was basically a bunch of retail investors trying to maintain price action. Here we've actually got a broadening, diversifying, deepening market, which looks perfect technically, has a good roadmap, has good seasonality. It's like, if you can't find conviction here, you're never going to find it. This is like the perfect storm, positive storm for Bitcoin. Yeah, one of the things that I keep thinking about, though, is, and it goes, it goes round and round in my mind, is that do we have an issue that people will constantly think they're too late? And how do we get past that issue? That's probably the more important question, because when Michael Saylor made his big bed, I think he paid on average around eleven, eleven and a half thousand for his first $450 million. And then he you know, bought that extra $600 million or six fifty, And I think that was at around 18000 maybe averaged over twenty. I can't remember. And I kept thinking, hmm, the people will see you did it at 11, then see you did it at 20. Now we're at 30 or 35. We get to 40, 50. Does that become a problem for people because they keep thinking they've missed out? Is that a conversation you're having with the investors you talk to? No, because the investors don't look at it in those terms. Prices are relevant. That's a retail obsession, right? Penny stocks, they're cheaper. For institutions, it is what is the adoption? What is the regulation? What is the market cap? So the more it goes up, the more the market cap makes it available for them to purchase. So that is a much bigger deal than price. So price is a function of that growing market cap. But if you're BlackRock, you would not have looked at it until it got to this near trillion dollar market cap. And that's the thing. So it's not about price because what they're looking for, nobody thinks when they buy, um, let's say, the S&P 500 for a portfolio, for a a larger portfolio. They're not thinking, how much is it going to go up? Is it too high at this price? They think, what's the portfolio diversification effects? Does it help add accretive value? How does it perform over the cycle? Meaning, you know, numerous cycles. You know, all of those things is what they actually look look for because they're looking for portfolio returns. Um, This is an issue with the space because the space still thinks of it in retail terms. So I think that structural change, I mean, again, Michael Saylor and the corporate treasurers don't think of it in price terms. They think of it, what does it do to the balance sheet of my corporation um, to offset other issues that I have with currency balances and, and treasury ownings and bond ownings and stuff like that. And so that's not a price conversation as such. Obviously, price is important, but it's it's more overall. That's kind of interesting, that market cap point. So do you believe there's potentially a wall of money that comes in when Bitcoin does breach the one trillion market cap? Yes, I think that's what we're seeing is front running the size of the market cap. Because at one right. trillion comes a serious asset. At 10 trillion, it's gold in terms of asset size. So that deepens and makes a broader market and allows more participants into it. So if you think of the more conservative pension funds, well, they can't take it seriously because they still think they have career risk. But when it's a $10 trillion Mm. asset, 
it's not going to get regulated to zero because $10 trillion is owned by individuals and pension plans and corporations and everything. So it's these kind of things that, that actually drive them. So what kind of things are holding people back at the moment in the conversations that you're having? Uh, time. I mean, so oh, I spoke to yeah. – so it just takes some time to onboard. So the conversations I get from family offices and institutions, I spoke to a big, big conservative asset management firm. I spoke to their Hong Kong office, and they're thinking through Bitcoin. And so I've given them the asset allocation paper that we we got at Real Vision. You know, we we commissioned at Real Vision and said, well, "Here's that." They said, "That's exactly what we need." Now, can you present to this group? So I presented to that group, and then it's like, "Can you now present to the senior managers?" Present to the senior managers. Then they need to write it all up. Then, if they say yes, we're going to do it. How? Okay. Now we can start with futures, which is what BlackRock are doing. Because if it's cash settled futures, I don't need to worry about the bearer asset element. So that works. But after that, when they want to own Bitcoin, they need to get an entire new back office infrastructure. How do you price it? Nobody has consistent pricing. Nobody, you know, what time does it close and open? Where all of the things that they need just for their risk models aren't normal. So all of this needs to be built out. And you need to get the approval from trustees. So this shit can be. It can take two months to get to buying futures. It can take nine months to get to actually buying Bitcoin and custodying it with somebody. Wow. Wow. That's kind of really interesting. I guess that's really interesting. If you think about it, right, you're in charge of your mum's pension plan and everybody like her. What you then have to do is justify that it's safe and it's secured properly, and you've done all your due diligence. And, and that's a lot of work because it can't be yellow, trust me. It's not Michael Saylor. You don't own the company, basically, or have all the voting rights. You have to appease millions of policyholders. So you've got a massive legal liability. So you have to do all the work. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But also, it kind of makes sense in another way in that the wall of money didn't happen straight after Michael Saylor, but we're now starting to see it trickle through. Like every week or, you know, we hear of another company and another company. Yeah, that, that side of it's uh, really interesting. Another thing that I, I was told is interesting, I don't understand the detail, you probably will, but somebody said to me, one of the most significant purchases of Bitcoin over the last few months was Mass Mutual, being an insurance firm. Have you looked much yeah. into that? And have you observed that as being slightly different from treasuries, other treasuries? Yeah, super important. I think that was NYD as well, by the way. Um, that is very important because who owns massive treasury-style cash balances and long-term liabilities is insurance companies and mm -hmm. assurance companies. This is exactly the kind of asset that they need. It's almost perfect for them because they have these long-term cash flows and they sit on tons of bonds, tons of different currency exposures, and they need to model out the risks of that. And Bitcoin actually works really well. There's not many instruments in the kind of money market side of things that looks anything like this, because bonds, you're going to get no real capital appreciation. You don't get any interest. So how do you manage a massive pool of cash? And Bitcoin becomes really interesting for them. So it, that's just a start. Once we start to see more of those, I mean, I think the whole insurance industry is going to start putting this on their balance sheet. It makes total sense. The same person about Mass Mutual also said to me, said the thing is about the Bitcoin on their balance sheet, it would likely be the last thing they would ever sell. Most insurance companies don't sell stuff. What they do is they build a portfolio and then draw down as necessary. And so that would be just a weighted amount. So again, people really misunderstand what people do here. An insurance company manages a big pool of assets, and then you make a claim because you crashed your car, let's say. Okay, so it comes out of the pool. So they're not going to go, oh, well, Peter's crashed his car. Shall I sell my German buns? No, they have an asset allocation. So what they do is just release some of the cash, and they have cash buffers for that. So... I, I don't think that changes a lot. It's going to be 
the guy who runs the asset allocator, the CIO, making the decisions of do we tweak our Bitcoin position by you know 15 basis points and reduce our German funds by 10 basis points, regardless of all the claims being made or whatever it may be, if it's life insurance or anything else. So again, it doesn't work in that way. Right. So interesting. So so we saw Ruffers announce a couple of days ago that they'd sold off part of their uh, Bitcoin uh, for about 600 million. Uh, I was slightly disappointed. Uh, I thought that was a quick trade, but I, I, I kind of understand. What was your read on that? So I, again, I know a lot of the story um, about this. And essentially, they got a lot of flack because they're quite a conservative asset management firm. Uh, they got a lot of flack. So what they did is their 600 uh, million had doubled. So they just said, fine, we'll just put the, the original bet, take it out. We're now in for nothing. You can't complain. So it's nothing to do with <laughs> they don't believe it. It wasn't a trade. It was like, listen, we're early. We're one of the first firms to do this. We understand that people are a little bit not sure about it. So what we'll do, we'll be in the trade for free. So that's all it was. And again, pretty clever, I think. Yeah, you know what? That's pretty smart when you explain it that way. It's um, Going back to this point of mass mutual, perhaps, never really wanting to sell their Bitcoin and being one of the assets they, they don't want to sell. Um, if more companies are adopting their treasury and you know starting to feel like that position, that that's going to force that's going to force this kind of position of uh, uh, force this scarcity issue. Because I was having a conversation with Jamie from Hut Eight Mining. We had this conversation where we both hold Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Obviously, they have significantly more than mine. But that that aside, holding Bitcoin on my balance sheet has doubled my capital position this year, which is fantastic. But it puts me into a position whereby over the next two, three years, if I need capital, I'm going. What? Well, I'm not going to sell the Bitcoin. I'm going to borrow against that Bitcoin because I don't want to sell it. And it gets this interesting position that as people start to hold the Bitcoin, they start to realize, like, I don't want to let go of this. I can leverage this to borrow. And that's a much better position to be in. Yeah, but again, if you're an institution and Bitcoin goes up, so let's say it's a 5% weight in your portfolio. Let's say Bitcoin triples. It's now 15% weight in your portfolio. You're now overweighted. What you are actually going to do is sell your I Bitcoin. I see. Um, okay, again, I see, I see. Very different to you and I holding it versus yeah. NASA allocation. And that's going to bring volatility down. Because as you rightly say right now, there are no sellers. So anybody comes into the market, the price gaps up, then there's a bit of retail leverage that gets stopped out in small sellers. But there's, it's... It, it's quite illiquid at the marginal price. But what's going to happen is these institutions are going to be buying and selling on a monthly and quarterly basis. They'll be buying into dips. They'll be selling into rallies to keep their allocation in line. And what's going to happen is Bitcoin's going to go from this 70-vol beast to 60-vol to 50-vol to 40-vol. And, you know, if you get to a, a world where Bitcoin is the reserve asset, then it's going to be a 5-vol. You know, so right. Okay, so yeah, that's that's a, so so reducing the volatility. In some ways, I th obviously, I think it's a good thing, um, but that's quite an interesting thing because I, I I don't think a lot of people have thought about it like that. Do you think that might shift the the pattern of the four year halving cycle where we have these eighty percent drawdowns? Do you think we could get away from that because of this? Yes, but not this cycle. And the okay. reason being is you keep posting pictures of Lambos, and. Yes. I, can't, I start thinking about something, you know, work I want to do in my hat, whatever it is, right? We want to cash our crypto tokens in for lifestyle tokens. So when the, we're all value investors now, and when the value is so out of whack that you think, I could sell some of that and buy a new house, and the value to you is so extreme that even though there's more upside there, the value, it's become so cheap in Bitcoin terms. So you sell your Bitcoin. Now, what usually happens is if we look at the last cycle, it went from like 200 up to 20,000. So I don't know what the average weighted entry price for most people was, but it was, it was somewhere two thirds of the way up that rally. So, you know, what happens eventually, people start going, huh, I want, I want to buy a car or huh, I want to go and holiday, whatever it is, right? So you start selling some. And it feeds on itself because you're like, oh, shit, I need to get my car. I don't want this to go down any further because I planned for that. We all have hopes and dreams. So it's actually a human behavioral cycle based on where we perceive there to be value. And it turns into, oh, shit, it's now become risk. I thought I was mm -hmm. rich and now I'm going to be less rich. 
But once the institutions come in properly into this space, that goes away because of that asset allocation where they tend to be buying the sell-offs. It tends to be less driven by this kind of stuff because they tend to be sellers on the way up and buyers on the way down. And that changes that dynamic. I think we're not going to be deep enough markets by the time we get to that next tipping point because, you know, honestly, if it's up at 250000 by the end of the year, most people want to take some profits and do something with it. Now, I know, again, it's against the philosophy of Bitcoin that this is the new future, but we live in the real world. We've got bills to pay. We've got hopes and dreams. And my personal hopes and dreams is not about the financial system. My personal hopes and dreams is about the situation I live in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how my family lives. You know, you bought your dad a car. It's all the same thing. So that's why that cycle exists. Um, and it's because it's been driven from the ground up with people with hopes and dreams who are acting like value investors at the peak. Like, with my Bitcoin, there's real value in property, real value in this. And that's fine. Yeah. It's interesting that you pulled the figure 250,000 out because I get a lot, I mean, probably like you, I get a lot of emails from people who listen to the show always tend to ask very similar questions. I'm getting a lot of questions now coming in. Where do you think the top is? Uh, whilst we have a 30% dip, just like 30% dips in 2017, the, the difference is when you dip 30% from, say, 2,000, you're going to 1,400. Well, when you dip 30, 30% from 40,000, you know, you're going down to 28. Uh, and the thing about going down to 28,000, if you hold like five Bitcoin, you've just suddenly dropped... A very significant amount. It's like a huge. So I think psychologically, it's a very, very different situation. The question I'm being asked most at the, at the moment, Raoul, is, Pete, what do you think the top will be? And we are seeing a range of predictions. I've seen 288 from Plan B. I've seen 400. I've even seen a tweet storm from you where you talked about it even has the ability. I think, did you did you peak at 1.2 million? No, I've peaked at a million, but not for this cycle. But it's possible yeah. that it overshoots. So I've just yeah. used a regression line and used the trend of the log scale. And basically it says somewhere between plan B and 400,000 uh, four, yeah, 400, is right, but it could actually hyperextend um, to get as high as it did from trend in 2013, which would give us a million. So I think it's skewed slightly higher than people expect. I don't think it gets to a million, but we've got institutions coming in. Who knows how this dynamic changes? So I do think it's interesting. The other thing for people to bear in mind is there's a couple of price hurdles that are coming up that people haven't thought through. The first one is Coinbase's IPO. So if you are an institution who wants to buy Bitcoin and you've got to get through all this rigmarole to try and get it signed off and Coinbase IPO comes out and it's a $60 billion company and you can stick a few billion in, it's a good enough proxy for a while. So my guess is that's going to take out a lot of demand from institutions in the short term. It's not a long-term thing, but it will absorb quite a lot of the demand. The next big thing after that is, I think 100,000 is going to be an issue because a lot of people got in around 10. A lot of people will have made 10 times their money and 100,000 is a round number and people think, let me take half my chips off the table. So I think we might see a longer correction. And I, you know, my guess is, my framework I'm using, and I'm using some seasonal analysis, suggests that we go up to 50,000 into March. That works perfectly for the Coinbase IPO. Everything calms down because institutional buyers stop piling into Bitcoin futures. They buy Bitcoin base first uh, because they can justify it easily because it's just an equity. And then, um, and then the next run, I think, takes us to 100,000 into June, by which case there's going to be a lot of profit taking. Yeah, well, th- this is why... Yeah, I got another email today. The the lady who does the transcriptions for the po- uh, the podcast, she said, I've listened to so many of your podcasts. I'm now getting FOMO. I don't know what to do. I want to buy Bitcoin. And my advice to her, like I said to everyone, is you have to have a really long time horizon. You really have to be thinking five to 10 years. If you start thinking shorter term, you're going to be at risk from the volatility. And I've kind of been there myself, Rao. I said uh, at the start of 2019, I was going to give myself 10 years. And I've been looking at these price targets and thinking about what might happen in the cycle. And, you know, knowing whether the top is 100, 250, 400, it's really hard to know. And I almost don't want to play that game. So I'm thinking, for the sake of four years, I think I'm going to wait for the next cycle. Because 
know, that's a considerably different place in four years' time. And I'm patient. Yeah. The point you need to think about is, is what happens in the four years? How much cash do you need? You will take some money off the table and run the rest. I think most of us will do that. I don't think most people, this because they now understand what this is. So I think people take some off the table at whatever high price you choose. People will scale out. Institutions will keep buying further up for the reasons we talked about before, market cap reasons, stuff like that. Um, and then I think you're right. A lot of people will just hold a lot more than was held on the last cycle and a lot more than was held on the cycle behind that um, for those reasons. But the potential returns each cycle go down as the market cap gets bigger and bigger because retail cannot drive. If I sell it to you and there's only one in existence, you know, you can drive up the price. If there's two of you bidding for it, you can drive up the price. But, you know, all the, a lot of retail investors are in, uh, the institution's coming in, and then it becomes really hard to go from a $5 trillion asset to $10 trillion to $20 trillion. So I think the returns go down over time anyway. And I think we've seen that in the cycles. So, but what is the return from the next cycle peak to the next cycle peak? I don't know. Call it 200 to 2 million. Who knows? Another 10x. Not many things give you 10x. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I guess one interesting point would be that if we get to the point where you know, Bitcoin does hit a $5 trillion market cap, is there a risk that people are less excited to invest? Because it is quite exciting right now because you have those high figures where people talk about multiple hundreds of thousands. Do you think psychologically it potentially loses some steam there? And then potentially we start to see a longer drawdown. What do you think happens at those kind of like $5 trillion market caps? I think this is a really good question. And I can see the community starting to think it through. It started with, st you know, stacking sats. But it feels a bit awkward and a bit of a forced narrative. We kind of have to explain to people that the price is not, you know, that the headline price, you don't have to buy one of these. <laughs> it's basically, we just have to explain that to the average person. But again, don't forget, retail is handing the baton on to institutions here. So retail investors will find it hard, and we all want retail participation, not because it drives up prices, because we truly believe it's the best thing for them to do, to have a chance for their futures to be able to pay off student loans or whatever it may be. So we all passionately believe it has a real place in people's personal portfolios, whoever they are and however little money they've got. Um, but the institutions, you know, will continue to drive that whole thing higher because they understand that price is just a number, you know. And it is, you know, it's, it's just a number. We just have to get better as a community. You know, this, the, you know, as you know, the thing for me that I've been trying to drive is institution adoption, speak the language. And I can tell from you who haven't come from finance, asking questions, I'm like, okay, fascinating, right? Because you're thinking as an individual investor. Um, we have to now also talk the language of those individual investors and say, listen, just because it's a million dollars doesn't mean you can't buy any. Um, but, you know, Robinhood, good or bad, um, have also fractionalized shares. So people are starting to get it. Next up, I talked to Rao more about how institutional investors think about Bitcoin. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay. First up today, we're going to kick off with Ledger. Now, Ledger's, Ledger's a really interesting one. So Ledger was the first hardware wallet I ever bought back in 2017 when I first got into Bitcoin and I realized I needed a hardware wallet. I ended up buying a Nano S and I am still, I'm still using that same Nano S today, which is amazing. It's always worked really well for me. There's two things I really like about it. Firstly, the hardware device itself is robust, really easy to use, but also the software they use to manage your Bitcoin safely has always been focused on UX. And I'm always you know, whinging about UX. They've nailed it. It's really easy to use. Another cool thing about your Nano S is you can connect it to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. I'm hoping at some point we'll get this on an Apple phone. I will be asking them about that. But listen, if you want to find it out, if you want to check out more about Ledger, head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have the mighty, mighty Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what it is. It's the only place right now that I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. And why is that? 
Kraken is consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange. And I'm always going on about security. This is so important to me. But they also have the best in class in customer service. So listen, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you've got a problem, you reach out to Kraken, they're going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And last up today are my friends, BlockFi, who've been crushing it ever since they took over sponsorship of the podcast. For the last three years, they've absolutely killed it. And they had a massive announcement recently. They are launching a rewards visa credit card early this year. And this has now been opened up to the public. The public wait list is open. Now, anyone, regardless of whether they have a BlockFi account or not, is eligible to join. I'm very excited for this because you are going to be able to stack sats with all your card purchases. Not just that, it's going to be a market leading 1.5% in rewards in Bitcoin. How fucking cool is that? Now, if you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So when, when you go and look at your Bloomberg terminal or you go to a website that's you know, full of different prices, commodities, stocks, etc., whenever you see Bitcoin, even me as a Bitcoiner, I still look at it as this like weird little rebel thing. Do you think we ever get to the point where Bitcoin just sits there alongside gold, silver, and people just consider it this commodity that's just alongside them you know, and, and doesn't give it that kind of like weird little look? Do you understand the kind of question I'm making? Yes. It depends. If it just remains a reserve asset and when it gets, you know, full price discovery, it goes to this five volatility asset and looks like kind of bonds or gold or gold's a bit more volatile, but something of that sort, it will just be another line on the Bloomberg screen. And, you know, everybody analysing what's going to drive the price, you know, do I need to increase my allocation? However, you know, there's the other part of this whole equation that you and I really haven't talked about is what technology gets built on it. So therefore, True. Yeah. what could it be its future value? So maybe it always remains this weird hybrid of a call option on technology and a reserve asset at the same time. Maybe it does. I mean, Google's been that really. So, mm-hmm. you know, Google is a search engine that makes advertising revenue, but it has a lot of call options. Amazon's done the same. AWS was one of the best call options they ever had. Um, So, you know, it's probably different. It probably ends up looking more like an equity in terms of how it moves around and the kind of narratives that drive it than a bond that become just a macro variable. Have you looked much into any of the technologies being built? Is there anything out there exciting you? I mean, I'm obviously very excited about what Jack Mallers is doing with Strike, but have you looked at any of this? Yeah, there's another one that most people aren't aware of yet, and I'll, I'll make you an intro to them. Um, Bottle Pay, coming out of the UK. Oh, I know Bottle Pay. Yeah, so Bottle Pay, there's a bunch of you know very famous hedge fund people who are involved in funding that to start. And it's basically... They think it's a superior version to Strike, Jack Manor's product. Um, and I've seen some of it, and you know, I know the players involved, and these are serious people. Will these get adoption? You never know, right? We've all got a million apps, and half of them never got adoption. I used to use Viber, and now I use, you know, we used to use Skype and Viber for our free calls, and now we all use WhatsApp and FaceTime, right? So you, don't, you just don't know. But I think BottlePay is the one that I've seen that's interesting. Um, because if there's two payment systems, Strike and Bottle Pay, okay, we're now starting to see a trend emerging. And somebody will then build another one. Whoever gets adoption gets the adoption, but it means it's coming. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Strike's very interesting technology. I know of Bottle Pay. They, they followed me on Twitter the other day. So I went to register and I'm in position like 45,000 on their list. So I've asked them to bump me because I'd like to, like to try it out. <laughs> My point really on something like Strike is super interesting. I really like the idea when Jack Palace talks about the ability just to move money around the world at no cost. 
I mean, it's fantastic, but it potentially decimates a number of industries, which I don't think we should be hugely sympathetic yeah, I've about. I've raised this point with pop before. There is no such thing as no cost. So somebody okay. is the product. It's the same with Robinhood. There's no cost. I could just yeah, buy yeah. and sell shit. Of course there is a cost. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous. You've got two foreign exchange transactions, pounds to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to dollars, if you're going to send me money. Right? Somebody's taking a turn in that. So... We just need to be a little bit careful because we, we go, Robin Hood, they're bad. This is amazing. It's all free. There is nothing free in this world. Everyone needs to work for a living. You just need to figure out how you're, how you're paying for it. But yes, it is amazing. As an idea and concept, it's fantastic. So, but the point I was going to try and make, Raoul, is that, that this is actually, as a technology, could revolutionize the ability to move money around the world. We know, if, certainly if you're living in you know, third world countries, that it, it's a bit more difficult. You have to use something like Western Union. The cost can be high. So this is a technology that can improve things for these people, as mobile phones have, etc. Are there any other industries that you think Bitcoin, the technology, can disrupt? Well, we just don't know what's going to get built on it yet, because, you know, to be Fair is Bitcoin has been slower to build on its architecture than other platforms. So we don't yet know what the smart contract futures future is. You know, because don't forget, if you've already got insurance companies using Bitcoin on their balance sheet, well, why would you not potentially use a different layer of the Bitcoin blockchain for your insurance contracts with complex terms? You know, Lloyds of London is a very complicated thing. But maybe you can put them all on the blockchain. So I think insurance is one of the clear disruptors. I think gambling probably goes on the blockchain. Um, again, because we can make complicated bets. Like you and I have got a bet. If you did that got a bet. blockchain, then I know that you can't well shout of it. Um, you know, it's, but you know, it becomes really interesting because you can have complexities in smart contracts of bets. Um, if mm-hmm. this happens, if it's sunny on Tuesday and so-and-so does this, then this is the payout. And that applies to all sorts of contractual terms. So there's a, there's a lot of things. There's supply chains as well from corporations. So, yeah, I mean, it's much bigger than just the finance world. It's basically the recorded ownership and trust of everything. Um, and it's really- that's how big it is. I think the betting one's great. I had a bet with American HODL, and uh, you know, was, we locked the Bitcoin up in a multi-sig two or three multi-sig. Obviously, we have uh, uh, somebody else, a third party, helping us with that, but you know, he can't get access to that. You and I have a slight different issue. We don't have to, um, we don't have to use a multi-sig because we're reputationally dead if we don't deliver on our bets, but um, it's looking, and it's looking have, good for you. And we, right have, and we want to have dinner with each other anyway, so it doesn't, so it's an incentive. You're up, you're up on that bet right now. It's, it's only February. There's plenty of time to play for. I know I'm praying on the futures to destroy it like it did for Bitcoin. So, all right. Anyway, like moving moving on from that, a uh, couple of kind of more important questions, which uh, some of the more hardcore maxis will care about, uh, kind of more ideological ones. We, we're seeing this kind of a lot of corporate entry into Bitcoin. Um, but one of the great things about Bitcoin is it was front run by retail for the first few years. Uh, a lot of people will be put off by price and will be put off by the unit price. But I think there's a bigger question than that, is that do we risk with or do you think about the fact that if if too many companies come to Bitcoin, it becomes too corporatized, that we kind of forget about the, the, the basic building blocks and the things that people really cared about, which is censorship resistance, seizure resistance. Do you think we end up focusing too much on the 21 million and not some of the more kind of freedom freedom driving aspects of bitcoin look i think that's inevitable with regulation and institution adoption it becomes very different but the community still holds that philosophy true and that means they will solve this so they will create private wallets they will create all sorts of ways to allow them because it's it's open source so you can build anything you want on top of it so we could create a private payments network between you and i that nobody knows about. You know, so I don't think it's going away. I think it probably just drives innovation. It drives innovation because you can't do it in the banking system. So you become illegal the moment you do it in the banking system once you try and do things. that. But with Bitcoin, it's not because it's nowhere. It, you know, it's, it's very difficult. So that is, I think, going to breed a lot of innovation in space. I don't think we even have a clue how much innovation is going to come here. 
Yeah, the banking thing is really super interesting, Raul. So I um, I got rejected for a bank account for the fifth time this week for my business. And it's always a different reason. Um, sometimes it, I got rejected because I have a business with the name Bitcoin in the title, <laughs> strangely enough. Um, I... I uh, banked. I banked with one bank. I was going to say it was uh, for nearly twenty years. Personally, I applied for a business account today, and again they rejected me. Uh, and they rejected me because they're not doing any accounts for uh, companies that are already running. They're only servicing new companies. I've really struggled to get a bank account. I quite like the idea of a wallet, which can essentially function as a bank account, which allows me to store Bitcoin and pounds in it. Just a very simple idea. Before I didn't used to think that Bitcoin could bring down the banks, I certainly think a mix of Bitcoin and stable coins can certainly give a, a, a different option to the banks, uh, certainly for someone like in my position. But an even more interesting scenario is, did you, see, uh, you? of course, you saw the announcement from the Bank of England today. Today I haven't. I was traveling between islands. You've not, you've not seen it. So the Bank of England, let me tell you this, uh, give you two seconds. You're going to love this one. So... Bank of England announced today that UK banks have been given six months to prepare for the possibility of negative interest rates. Uh, yeah. Right. So, so first question, because I've got a few questions for you on this. There's, I don't know the the um, the scope of the audience, but I'm going to assume there's some you know a variety of people. There might be some people who don't really fully understand how in negative interest rates can exist and what that actually means for them. Could you cover that first, then go to my questions? The idea behind negative interest rates is to incentivize capital out of the banking system and savings into the economy to stimulate the economy. It's usually a sign of low economic growth or falling inflation. So it's an idea of stimulating demand and stopping capital getting hoarded into the banks. We've got stuff like M2 falling, so the, the velocity of money, sorry, falling. It means that money's getting hoarded. So the idea behind negative interest rates is that also, it has a nice side effect is the fact that everybody's so in debt, it means governments can fund themselves at zero or negative. In fact, you pay them for the privilege. But that's not that weird. And this is, you know, actually, if you buy gold, you pay a cost. It has a negative carry because you have to pay for storage. There's many things in this world. If you buy fine art or if you buy a house in the U.S., um, you get or pretty much anywhere. You have to pay, pro except the Cayman Islands, you have to pay a property tax an annual tax. So those are costs of carry. What they're basically saying, if you're an investor, is yes, you can use our secure asset, which is UK gilts in this case, but you're going to pay for that. Um, fascinating. What else does it mean? The big problem is for savings. The really big problem is for the pension holders because in the end, when you retire, your pension and the UK, it's law that a certain amount, I think it's still law, that a certain amount has to go into fixed income, into bonds, because they pay out over time so you can afford to live until when you die. The problem is with negative interest rates or zero interest rates, there is no return. So it means that for you, so if you had your pension plan had a million pounds. You've been paying into it for 60 years. It's now worth a million pounds. Well, if interest rates were 10% a year, you get 100 grand a year. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. You get zero. Okay, then you have to start eating your capital. So let's say your cost is 100 grand a year. So 10 years, you've out of money. Guess what? You're still 75 years old, pretty sprightly, and you've got no money. That is terrifying. If it go negative... And considering how many baby boomers there are, there's like 150 million between the US and Europe and the UK, you're going to destroy their future savings. But the equity market has compensated for that somewhat and gone up. But really, I don't want my mum to be in equities at this point in, in her retirement cycle. I want her to have a secure income. So it is really hard and it distorts prices, it distorts risk, and it creates unintended consequences but hey the banks and go the governments can print more money and it doesn't cost them anything that's basically the game do you think that flow of money 
is, is a COVID-related issue. I was, I was chatting to um, – I've got a guy right, right now um, who's doing some work in my daughter's bedroom to have it uh, fixed up. And I, I said to him, yeah, are you busy at the moment? He said, I've never been busier. He said, everyone's just sat at home looking at their walls, but they're not spending any money. You can't go out. You can't go to the pub. You can't go on holiday. All you can really do is do your shopping and buy stuff of Amazon. He said a lot of people are saving money. Do you think this is what's causing it? And this is what the Bank of England is trying to do, and they're trying to get people to spend that money? Um, that's part of it. Um, yeah. The banks are not lending it out because I've talked about this a lot. There's an insolvency going on. It's not happening at you know multi-national corporation level. It's happening at your friend's business down the road level. right? Mm. So there's a lot of people don't want to lend the money. So the banks are sitting on cash. People are sitting on cash because they're nervous. They don't know how this plays out. And they realize they didn't have enough cash. But the actual biggest driver of interest rates is actually demographics. Because the older you get, the less you spend. You bought your dad a car. Why? Well, he's not going to spend his own money on it because he's retired. Or he's, you know, and it's the same thing. Yeah. I saw my dad spending full 65% over the first seven years of his retirement. And, you know, he used to buy a nice bottle of wine and maybe that bottle of wine was 30 euros. Not all the time, but that's what he drank. And then he was buying, he was with his other mates looking, what's the best wine under five euros? And he's, you know, and he was, he was not poor, but he didn't know how long he was going to live for. Yeah. So he thought the worst thing could happen is run out of money. That drives a massive shift is the worst thing I can do is run out of money when I'm 80. Right. That's everybody's worst nightmare. Um, so it drives lower interest rates because people have to save the older they get. So if someone's listened to this round, that they've heard your explanation of uh, negative interest rates. They know themselves. They've got to either plan for their future or they're, they are retired and they're worried about the impact on their pension. What should people be doing? And I know that's a complicated question and this isn't financial advice, but no, it's something people have got to think about. Yeah, so... I'll come on to the, the retirees and people soon to retire. Let's look at everybody else. The thing that you've done and I've done is create an income stream that you're in control of the best yep. you can. And if you create two income streams, you're more robust. So you can be your own yield. You know, it's your time. How much yield do I get for my time? Whatever that may be. You could be a hairdresser or, you know, you could be an ex-advertising exec who's decided to go into podcasting and build a business from that, right? But what you're doing is revaluing your time and investing in a new business and getting a return back. Get a few of those, fantastic. Then, exactly as you've done and I've done over my career is, okay, I've now got my income streams. How do I save for the future? My view has always been, Get that security of an asset first, like a house, because then, then everything can go wrong. The podcast business could get regulated, and you're not allowed to do it. Anybody called Peter is not allowed to podcast. You know, your, your business is in tatters, but you own your house. So you can just go work in the pub. You know, I, I just like to have security because I've seen too many people and too many of my parents' friends who have the rug pulled halfway through their life um, because of some event that they lose their job. And then if you're young, or even if you're in your 40s or 50s, Bitcoin has a great, great value for you. And you don't have to allocate as much crazy amounts of our net, you know, liquid network worth as you and I have, but to have 10% in and it goes up tenfold, you know, that's a 100% increase in your liquid net worth. You're doubling your worth. Okay, that's really powerful. So I, I think it really has a value. Would I tell... A pensioner to buy it, I don't know. Because it is volatile. And the last thing I want them to be is freaked out if it does have the down cycle again. Because if you're young, down cycles are a feature, not a is it it's not a bug, because you actually want them so you can accumulate more at lower prices. Much like mm -hmm. United in cycle. Um, so I don't know what to suggest for the older, but maybe DeFi, and when that gets better in, in, in the Bitcoin world, you know, as BlockFi are doing, is I could say to mum, you know what, if you stick 100 grand of your pension savings into this, it's going to give you a guaranteed return over time of X percent. Well, they've all stopped thinking in percent anymore. 
They're just thinking, can I not spend my capital? But giving them a yield again in a negative mm-hmm. interest rate world in the UK? Yeah, I might tell my mum to do that and say, don't, what ha- don't care what happens to Bitcoin. It can go to zero as long as you're getting your yield. So there's some interesting stuff that could develop from here. The problem is, is the more of the pensioners see that they can get yield again, the more they'll drive down yields like they've just done to the rest of the world. So all the yields yeah. compress, unfortunately, <laughs> but they've got a chance. All right, we've only got a couple of minutes left, Raoul. So uh, a couple of interesting questions to finish with. A broad first question for you. you know, what are the things you're thinking about right now with regards to Bitcoin over the next year? What are the, what are the important things for you? I think this institutional adoption, uh, there's a couple of actual things here. One is the institutional adoption. I want to see corporations who are larger and more established within the community put some like Apple, put some on their balance sheet. You know, not the trailblazers because they're always deemed to be black sheep. You know, Elon Musk has always been a black sheep. He's the richest man in the world, but he's, the, he's a black sheep. But Jeff Bezos is not a black sheep. If Amazon said, or Apple said, that's a, that's a different driver. Um, I think that, I think, I'd love to see a pension fund do this. Um, you know, a larger pension fund, because I really, as we just talked about, I think there's real value in pension assets in Bitcoin. And I think they, they need to do that. That would be an amazing thing because that will drive a lot of adoption. The other thing is what I'm looking for in this space is ease of consumer use. It's still terrible. I mean, transferring your money out into a wallet and you've got to get these numbers and you've got to store that. I mean, it's just shocking. You know, where's your thumbprint to do this and a retina scan or whatever it is but this stuff is terrifying. It terrifies me because at least if I try and transfer money from my bank to you and they don't make the payment, I can call them up and say, where's my bloody payment? In this world, it's just, it's gone. Well, do you know what? I heard a good counter argument to this uh, from Janine. I don't know if you follow Janine. She worked, she's on a part of Block Digest. She said, and it, it actually changed my view because I, I, I like a good UX, but she said, when you have tricky UX and you know if you make a mistake and you could lose your money, you're a lot more careful. And I think she's kind of right. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a midway. That might apply to somebody with ADD like myself, but it doesn't apply to my mum. It doesn't apply to my sister-in-law who keeps asking me every day, should I sell my Bitcoin? I'm like, I've told you, you're holding on to this for 10 years. Um, it doesn't apply to them. They're used to a world of beautiful consumer goods. And I don't want to care how I send you the money. I don't want to know about these long string of characters. I don't do that when I send you an email or we do this Zoom call. We just hit it and do it. So that's how I want this world to get to. This awkward clunkiness still um, has to go. Once that happens, then I think we have a much broader use case that goes beyond investing it becomes a utility and that can be really powerful the network effects get even bigger great well listen Raul you know I always love talking to you you always explain these complicated market-based things the way that I can understand it Um, and hopefully some point this year fingers crossed we'll actually be able to hang out in person drink some uh, ramen have a steak exactly right I look forward to it my friend come on how interesting is that? Now listen, I love Rao. Even though he's a bit of a shitcoiner now, I do love Rao. I've got to bet on with him now about Ethereum versus Bitcoin. If I win it, he's going to pay for me to go out to Cayman. So fingers crossed I win that bet. Now I love Rao's insights. He's been on the show a bunch of times. I know some of you are annoyed because he's into the whole altcoin thing, the whole shitcoin thing. I get it. I'm going to have an argument about this with him when I get over to Cayman. We're going to drink some rum. I'm going to talk to Rao about this. That doesn't change the fact that he's very smart when it comes to institutions and traditional investment. So I'm always going to talk to him. Now, I thought it was great to get his insights on how institutions think about Bitcoin. Because, you know, with things like the unit price, I'm like, does that put them off like it puts off, you know, retail investors like me? And it was also interesting to hear Raoul say some of the institutions actually require higher price to even get involved. Something that I actually was told about by Travis Kling a long time ago and I totally forgot about. Another thing that I hadn't really thought of this time is what it takes for these people to be able to deploy their capital. You know, Rao said it can take up to nine months for people seeing MicroStrategy, Square and Tesla. 
they might not be able to start buying towards until towards the end of the year, which is very promising for the bull market. So anyway, listen, I hope you enjoyed this one. I appreciate Raul letting me publish it on my show. I thought it was a great interview. I thought you lot would really enjoy it. If you've got any questions about it, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. Just do not send me any weird shit. Actually, some of you are now, I think you're sending me weird shit because I've said this. Stop it. I don't want the weird shit. Also, big thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you support the show, thank you. I love you. But if you listen to the show regularly and you have not left me a review, what the hell are you doing? I thought we were friends. Come on. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, give me five stars. You know you want to. Or don't, give me one star. If you think the show's shit, give me one star. I can take it. Outside of that, a couple of other things. As I said in the intro on Defiance this week, we have released a very old interview I did, my 10th ever interview. Back in 2017, I recorded this in Austin with Lynn Albrick, the mother of Ross Albrick. It's 10 years since Ross launched the Silk Road, and I just want to get this interview out there. I don't want people to forget about Ross. He's there in prison for the rest of his life currently. His double life sentence plus 40 years, but we want to do everything to get that dude out. Also, head over to neveredit.com and sign up to my newsletter. That's your daily dose of Bitcoin, tech, and macroeconomics. Getting a lot of good feedback on that. People are enjoying that. Look, the plan is to expand it, to get a few writers on board and create a news desk. So bear with me. But I hope you go and check that out. Apart from that, have a great weekend. I love you all, and I will see you all next week.